Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. And so then you ask yourself, how quickly did native foodways work their way in? Because if a native woman is cooking for an African man with Spanish ingredients, what is she making? I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Before we get started, take a moment to rate and review The Zest in your podcast app. This will help other foodies to find us. Thanks so much. Today, we're traveling back to a time long before podcasts and apps even existed, the 17th and 18th centuries. That's when my guest says Florida became the birthplace of fusion cuisine. something you may not have learned in history class. The original Underground Railroad traveled from north to south. For reasons my guests will explain, during the late 17th and early 18th centuries, Spanish Florida offered refuge to people fleeing enslavement from British colonies. So what does this have to do with food? Well, the mingling of Spanish settlers, free blacks, and indigenous people in St. Augustine led to some pretty unique ways of eating whose influence shows up on our plates even today. That's why my guest, historian Andrew Batten, says Florida is the birthplace of fusion cuisine. My name is Andrew Batten. I'm one of the directors of Florida Living History, which is a nonprofit educational organization based in Central Florida, dealing with Florida's history from the very first Spanish explorations up until statehood. The thrust of today's discussion is about how Florida is the birthplace of fusion cuisine. Centuries before the rest of the world even heard the term or thought of the term, Florida was living fusion cuisine. And by that I mean the Spanish came here, interacted with Native Americans, learned their food ways, then Africans came and their food ways were introduced And the great irony of all of this is that out of this came what we consider all-American food, which, of course, it isn't. It's European and Spanish and North African and West African and South American all blended together into what we would eat at Sonny's Barbecue. That's so funny because I think of fusion as like a relatively new term within the past couple of decades, but you're saying it's centuries old. So how far back are we going and where in Florida are we talking about? Well, the the fusion of cuisines actually started before the first Europeans ever landed in the New World. Spain was already a fusion cuisine because they had European foods, they had North African foods from the Moors who invaded So they had Islamic influences, they had Mediterranean influences, they had Middle Eastern food, 
They had a strong Jewish population, so there were a lot of Jewish traditions in Spanish cooking. So a thousand years ago, the Spanish were already enjoying fusion cuisine. But when they came to America, it really began to percolate in the 17th and then the early 18th centuries when through their introduction to um, Native American foodways and then especially African foodways beginning uh, around the 1690s and then continuing through the first half of the 18th century, the Spanish got this sort of kickstart of new ingredients, new ways of cooking. And so it all began to blend together in Florida. And I would say most specifically in St. Augustine in the early part of the 18th century. This is fascinating. Give us the Cliff's Notes history lesson of how these different groups ended up together in St. Augustine. Well, of course, the Spanish arrived in uh, St. Augustine in the 1560s, 1565 they arrived, and they brought with them a lot of their foods and their, their traditions. The most important one really for Florida's history was pigs. They brought them in large quantities. There were already pigs that had been uh, introduced to Florida probably about 30 years earlier, and as pigs do, they had reproduced wildly. So there were vast numbers of wild pigs all throughout the Southeast. But what the Spanish started doing was they were preparing pork, which was their national favorite meat, but they started preparing it in the way that they had learned from the natives in the Caribbean. And so you start to see them smoking it over fires in what would have been called a barbacoa, which is what the natives of the Caribbean called it which is where we get the word barbecue. So you're cooking traditional Spanish food, but cooking it in a Native American fashion. And then you add to this the ingredients that they took when they arrived in Central and South America, things like sweet potatoes, pumpkins, sweet peppers, hot peppers. All of these are rapidly introduced into Spanish cooking. One of the things that's so interesting about the Spanish is they were much more broad-minded than most Europeans when it came to food. Somebody once said that the British, everywhere they went, they wanted to eat like they were still in England. Uh, but the Spanish weren't like that. They were very open to new ideas. So they introduced corn into their diet. They introduced peppers. They introduced squashes and beans and all of these different things that they encounter in the new world. And then a third strain comes in Beginning in the 1690s in St. Augustine, you start to have African peoples who have escaped from enslavement in the, uh, the English colonies. They make their way to Florida and they bring with them some of their foodways. And so a lot of things that I grew up eating, thinking this was real old fashioned American Southern cooking, things like okra, yams, collard greens, I had no idea, black-eyed peas, no idea. These were all indigenous to West Africa. So these were introduced into the American diet by the African peoples who were on the East Coast of, the, of America, um, and specifically here in St. Augustine in Fort Mose. Uh, it was a free settlement. These people would have planted and harvested the crops they were familiar with from West Africa. And so by that means, 
they make their way into the American diet. And within a very short time, they are thought of as absolutely distinctly American foods, when of course they're not. Yeah, that's fascinating. Everything you named, I would consider like soul food or Southern food, but you're saying it has its origins in Africa. Um, you talked a little bit about Fort Mose, which was the free black settlement in St. Augustine. Can you give us a really quick history lesson, which I know it's gonna pain you to leave out so many details, but can you explain how this enclave in Florida was a place for freedom seekers to come to escape enslavement? Because a lot of people would just be baffled by the idea of escaping slavery by going from say Georgia or the Carolinas south to Florida. Exactly. The, uh, I mean, the irony of all of this and something that Florida really should be proud of is that originally the Underground Railroad ran south. And so people escaping from uh, the Carolinas originally and then Georgia uh, make their way south to Spanish Florida where they will be given their freedom. And so Fort Mose begins in the year 1738. It is a settlement that has roots that stretch back to the 1690s when the first enslaved peoples had escaped, made their way to Florida, and had been granted freedom by the governor. But for a while, they simply settled on the periphery of the city of St. Augustine. In 1738, a new town was formally granted permission by the governor, and that was Fort Mose. And so beginning at that time, it became its own free independent settlement the understanding was that to gain your independence and to gain your freedom and your citizenship as a Spaniard, you had to do only two things. One was you had to convert to the Catholic Church, and two, you had to render service in the militia. And so these were obligations of these people. What's interesting is we find that some of the people who made their way to Fort Mose were originally from the Kingdom of Congo. Congo had been a Catholic nation for over a century, almost two centuries at this point. So they were not converting to the Catholic Church, they were returning to the Catholic Church. So that's one of the fascinating parts of Fort Mose's history. So these people brought with them their religion, their culture, and their food ways. That is just fascinating. I've done a little bit of research into Fort Mose, and I got to attend one of the annual reenactments in St. Augustine, which I would recommend to everyone. But it's just mind-blowing, the idea that for a, a time in history, Florida was a place to come to be free from enslavement, and Spain had its own reasons, you know, to kind of help beat back the British and Protestantism. But that's a whole... We could do a whole deep dive into that, but we're talking yeah. about the food. I just felt that it's important to understand the context of how we ended up with Spaniards, Africans, and Native Americans all converging in Florida and having uh, one big dinner party, I guess. So tell me more about the food. Well, you have the Spanish coming with certain things that are absolutely essential. Wine, garbanzo beans, pork, onions, garlic, olive oil. Those are all pieces that they just can't live without. I love that you started with wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's funny is, of course, there are grapes that grow native in Florida. 
the French, when they arrived in Florida, tried the local grapes, made wine out of them, and said, not bad. So the French, we think of them as the great wine snobs, they didn't have a problem with the local wine. The Spaniards would not touch it. And so every single drop of wine consumed in Spanish Florida from 1565 until 1821 had to come from somewhere else. And so we're talking about thousands of miles by sea from Spain, usually to Havana, and then from Havana to St. Augustine. So you have these ingredients that simply cannot be found locally. And so wine is one of them. Olives, they couldn't get olive trees to grow here. And so they have issues with some of the things that they love. But they find very quickly that Florida is very good for others. And so citrus fruit is planted very quickly. The first major crop that they produce in Florida is onions. And so um, long before the first orange tree or lemon tree was ever planted in Florida, they were growing tons of onions. They're raising beef cattle. They're raising pigs. And so the Spanish bring with them certain foodways that they're not willing to give up. But they very quickly begin to realize you can't grow decent wheat in Florida, for example. So they start looking around for what other alternatives there are. And so they find maize, corn, Indian corn. They start using kunti, which is a, a shrub that grows locally, where the root can be ground and pounded and made into flour. Cassava is the same thing. It makes into a bread that will last a very long time in a humid climate. So they very quickly start latching on to native dishes that are going to supplement what they can't provide themselves. So they latch onto this very early. Uh, they start producing cassava bread and kunti bread, corn bread, and then sticking with some of the things they absolutely love. And so pork is a big part of their diet. And of course, being Catholic, they consume an enormous quantity of fish because there are almost 200 days a year when good Catholics in the 18th century cannot eat meat. They're very fortunate, though, because one of the things they discover in Florida is there are a lot of things that swim that they can eat uh, that we would not consider fish. And so they eat dolphins and porpoises and whales. They eat manatees. They eat oh, seals. sorry. <laughs> It finally happens that the, the Bishop of Havana, Havana oversaw the diocese that was part, a part of their diocese was St. Augustine. Uh, the Bishop came to visit and was given a plate of manatee and he took one bite and he said, it is so delicious. It cannot possibly be considered fish. And so he classified it as meat, which is good because there probably wouldn't be any manatee left if he had considered it fish. Wow. I mean, it's a mammal, right? It is. But again, at that time, if it swam in the water, so you could eat beavers, you could eat otters, you could eat things that were clearly mammals. Uh, but because they lived most of their life in the water, they were classified as fish. So it helped to be a Catholic in Florida because you had a much greater range of opportunities than you would have had back in Spain. Back in Spain, it would have been herring or codfish, and that was about it. Mm -hmm. So the, the people here did much better. Yeah, coming to Florida was a good move on their part. It was. Now, how did you learn all of this? Are there records of this? There are. 
what's funny is that I've been doing programs on colonial cooking for almost 40 years, but I spent most of my life in the Northeast. And so I lived and worked in New York, Pennsylvania, places like that. And so I became very knowledgeable about colonial cooking and colonial foodways. And then about 18 years ago, my wife and I moved to Florida and I thought, well, I, I already know everything. And then I realized, no, I don't. I don't know one single thing about Florida history. I don't know anything about their cooking or their history or their culture. And so I had to really go back and start from scratch, which was very exciting. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but it also meant that I had to dig into the records. And I was very fortunate that I met some people who are vastly knowledgeable on this. And so I was able to work with them and pick up a lot of tips. And then I became fascinated with Spanish cooking simply because it tells you so much about the people. It's so much more than just food because it was a window into their culture. The way they viewed the world is reflected in their food. The way they dealt with religion, the way they dealt with politics, the way they dealt with family, all of that is reflected in their food. And so it became a, just a fascinating undertaking for me to look at this and try to figure out people with such a different world in which they lived. So it, it's just become a, a passion for me. I can see why. This is truly fascinating, as you said. So give me an example of like a breakfast, lunch, and dinner that would have been of the day that we're talking about with these people in the St. Augustine area. And would they all have been sitting down and eating together, all these different cultures? Breakfast would have been very simple, a slice of bread and a glass of wine. And that's regardless of age. And so a six-year-old child, that's what they would sit down to. Uh, nobody drank water. Water was a death sentence, especially in Florida, where it was largely contaminated. And so everyone from the age of probably five or six on it's bread and wine for breakfast. Their main meal of the day would have been served in the early afternoon. It was a more substantial meal. Generally, it would have been served hot, even in Florida. And so that would have been a stew, perhaps. There are dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of Spanish recipes for stews, but they all boil down to the same three or four basic ingredients. It's beans, pork, broth, and then vegetables. So that would have been their main meal of the day. And then later in the afternoon or, or more likely in the evening, uh, they might have had a, a piece of cake. They might have had, if they could afford it, a cup of chocolate or some coffee. Uh, they might have a little bit more of the stew reheated. So it was really one major meal and then two much smaller meals. And then, of course, during periods of avoidance of meat, so Lent, Advent, every Friday, every Wednesday throughout the year, it would have been fish instead of meat. And so it would have been, could have been many, many different things. Could have been codfish, could have been something else. Bread, beans, lots of garlic, lots of onions, wine with every meal. So that was fairly typical of what a, a Spaniard at the time would have eaten. So wine for breakfast, cake for dinner, <laughs> yes, and then one larger meal during the day. And again, even in Florida, even in the heat, it generally was considered you didn't feed someone unless you fed them a hot meal. 
And so at least one hot meal per day. That's not bad. I could get with that. Wine for breakfast, hot meal for lunch, cake for dinner. Mm -hmm. And then hot chocolate, which was very, very rich. So rich it actually had to be eaten with a spoon, uh, which would have had lots of cream. It would have had hot pepper in it. So it would have been very spicy or coffee. They were fiends for coffee. They were the first Europeans to, to drink coffee with great gusto. And they liked it hot, strong, black, and sweet. Kind of like Cuban coffee today, I guess. Exactly. The recipe that I've read from the 17th century was black as the devil, hot as hell, sweet as an angel, strong as love. That's how you're supposed to serve your coffee. <laughs> that holds up. That recipe would hold up at like one of those little ventanitas down in Miami, I think. <laughs> exactly so. So this is what the Spaniards would eat? Would the Africans and the Native Americans also be eating something similar? Well, it's interesting because the people of Fort Mose would have had access to many of the same foods. We think they supplemented it. They grew their own crops. And so one of the things I have not been able to find really is how would they have had their meals? What was the rotation? So that's not entirely clear. Did they adopt Spanish food ways? Many of them adopted Spanish names. They learned to speak Spanish. So how sort of Hispanicized were the African people? We don't know. But we do know from archaeological remains that they ate many of the same foods. You find a lot of pork bones. You find a lot of chicken bones. They were Catholic as well. And so they would have been expected to keep the same dietary restrictions on fish. And so my guess would be, although it's, it's really just supposition, is that they might have adopted sort of the same pattern of eating as well as many of the dietary restrictions and structures of the Spanish. Mm -hmm. They say you eat like your friends or the people you hang around. So that makes sense. Exactly. And, and something that's so interesting about Fort Mose there was always a gender imbalance at Fort Mose. There were more men than women, and it was consistent across many, many years. Uh, there were women who escaped from enslavement. As a matter of fact, the very first group that ever arrived in St. Augustine included not just a woman, but her newborn child. And so she walked all the way from South Carolina to Florida, whether she gave birth on the way or shortly before isn't clear. So there were women there, but many of the African men, we believe, intermarried with Native women. And so then you ask yourself, how quickly did Native foodways work their way in? Because if a Native woman is cooking for an African man with Spanish ingredients, what is she making? So it, it really opens up a whole new avenue to look at this how quickly did this sort of blending and assimilation take place? My guess would be fairly quickly. If the woman is cooking, the man is going to end up eating pretty much what she prepares. True. So, um, <laughs> you have a native woman with African and Spanish ingredients. She's going to put it together as best she can, and then he's going to eat what she provides. So it's, it's a, I think, a very short timetable for the blending of these traditions. I think that is so cool. And yep, that's how it works in my house. Whatever I make, he's going to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it's the other way around because I do all the cooking. And so my poor wife has to subject herself to whatever I have on the table. <laughs> 
No, I think, uh, I think she's probably eating pretty well. I've seen some of the pictures of you on the Florida Living History Facebook page in full costume reenacting the way the Spanish were cooking back then. And you seem like you know what you're doing. Talk to me about those reenactments. So several times a year we do these programs. I try to choose a seasonal menu. I try to blend the ingredients as well. For example, if I make a Spanish stew, a cocido, for example, which was a traditional Spanish uh, stew made with pork, beans, and cabbage. But what I'll do is I'll substitute black-eyed peas and collard greens for the, the beans and the cabbage. Is it a day of abstinence from meat? Is it not? And so it's a great opportunity for me because it makes me think months in advance I have to research what would have been available. I actually have a small garden where I try to grow some of the ingredients so that I know perfectly well that this is available, that this time of the year, this herb is blossoming or this particular plant is growing. And so then I know I can serve it up. You know, when I do something in February, I have to think about the fact that whatever I'm serving has to be something that could have been preserved over the winter. And so, you, it really focuses your attention and it brings you out of the modern time where absolutely every ingredient I want is as close as the nearest Publix. You touched on this, but how was the food preserved? I mean, in Florida, even now, things spoil so quickly, like fruit left out on the counter has flies, you know, swirling around it. Exactly. You would have used the, all the traditional means, which uh, at the time were smoking salting and drying. So they, they came up with compromises for things that would work. But Florida must have been a real challenge all the time. Uh, one of the things you find is they began commercially producing orange juice and shipping that out in barrels back to Europe. And of course, very popular on board ship because it would keep you from getting scurvy, but also very popular for gentlemen's punch. And so rather than trying to ship the oranges themselves, which would have gone bad very quickly, you squeeze out the juice, uh, you put it up in a cask, seal it tightly, and it will make it all the way back across the Atlantic safely. We've been talking about the Native American groups, but I don't think we specified which Native American groups these would have been. Do you happen to know? Well, it's, it's very interesting. Florida has a very different history than most other places in America. When the Spanish arrived, there were a number of sort of large native nations in Florida. The regrettable story is that by the early 18th century, overwhelmingly, they had either died out from a pandemic disease, some of them had been taken into slavery in the Caribbean, and some of them had, had assimilated with other tribes. And so, for example, the Tamuqua, who were the natives in the St. Augustine area. By the early 18th century, they were considered to be virtually extinct. So what you have is you have waves of Native Americans coming into Florida to replace those who had originally been there. And so you have natives coming down from the Carolinas, being pushed out by the British, and so settling in St. Augustine, much as the um, African people did fleeing to, to freedom in St. Augustine, some of the natives did the same thing. And so you have tribes from Georgia 
and the Carolinas setting themselves up in Spanish Florida. And so you start to see this changeover. The Creek Nation, which was largely in Georgia and southern Alabama, they began to be pushed south out of Georgia and Alabama by the English-speaking settlers. Large numbers of them come into Florida because, of course, at this point, most of the Florida natives are themselves gone. There are very few Spanish settlers in Spanish Florida. And so there's a huge vacuum. There's this great, enormous peninsula, largely unpopulated. And so you start to get these people coming in. And so you get a blending of nations. What we think of today as the Seminoles are a blending of people from the Creek nations. Uh, you have some of the, the people left from the original and Aboriginal people of Florida but also many escaped Africans assimilated into the Seminole Nation. And so they become this blended peoples very quickly. So in the 18th century, at the time of the foundation of Fort Mose, you are seeing these different native groups coming in from other areas, from Georgia, from the Carolinas, from Alabama, and settling, resettling into Florida, bringing their own traditions with them. Oh, well, thank you for that. We don't usually get such a, an in-depth explanation of some of the Native American groups that were there at the time. As we start to wrap up, is there anything else you really want people to know about Florida's first fusion foods? It changed the way I look at food when I started learning all this. I always joke with my wife, when we go to Sonny's Barbecue, I eat meat and she eats all the side dishes, but everything she's eating is African food. Uh, she has a big bowl of black-eyed peas. Now it has a little bacon in there, which is Spanish, and collard greens and candied yams. It's all African. And so it gives me a much greater appreciation for it. And so I think people should appreciate Florida's part in all of this. Florida's part as being the birthplace of the Underground Railroad, there are so many things, especially in a time when our society is divided and, and angry, there are so many things that bring us together. Nothing brings people together like food. And then if I point out to you that this piece over here is Spanish, and that's Native American, and that's African, it's going to make you think about your food in a, in a way you never have before. It's something that Floridians should be proud of, but I think they can only be proud of it if they know it. And so that's why I've become a huge believer in getting everyone in America to stop in St. Augustine, spend a few hours there, and most especially stop at Fort Mose, spend an hour standing in that field, looking at that, knowing that this is where these crops were growing, these people were living, and all of these different threads were being woven together into something new. Well, Andrew Batten of Florida Living History, this has been so eye-opening, so inspiring when we think about all the different cultures that came together to make a plate of food or to make your wife's favorite sides at Sunny's Barbecue, her, I guess, favorite African restaurant. Who knew? <laughs> this was great. This was... Um, something I've never heard before. Well, my pleasure. I'm so glad to talk to you. 
That was Andrew Batten of Florida Living History. To learn more of this fascinating food history and keep up with the organization's schedule of reenactments, just follow the link from our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with help from Cheyenne Jaglau and Mark Hayes. Copyright 2021, WUSF Public Media. Mm-hmm.